The vast majority have not changed drastically their relationship with work. They're still working virtually. Frankly, they want to continue to do that. Most of the workers don't want to go back permanently to a five-day-a-week office environment. First of all, there's most recent escalation. You've probably seen and heard that in the material and commodity markets, the shortage of labor, which has impacts to the cost of construction, availability of manpower, and of course, a pent up demand. Even when lumber was up 300%, lumber only makes up, let's say 10 or 15% of the cost of a job. So it may have been a 10 to 15% impact to the overall bottom line. This is the Language of Business, a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs. Anyone thinking about a startup or anyone looking for a post-pandemic pivot. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. In this episode, we look at businesses reopening. What if employees don't want to come back to work in the office, at least not every day? And how did the shutdown affect reopening of construction projects? Here's Greg Stoller. Don, thank you. So many people are enjoying working from home, but what happens if the boss says return to the office or else? We're on location with Jim French, who's a senior lecturer at the Boston University Questrom School of Business and Career Management and Human Resources, and welcome. Thanks, Greg. It's good to be here. You run, as faculty lead, the student liaison role for the Evening MBA program. What's happening with your students? Are all of them continuing to dial in via Zoom, or are you starting to see a change to in-person learning? Everything is happening. Some students are being asked to go back to the workplace on a more regular basis, if not on a permanent basis. But the vast majority have not changed drastically their relationship with work. They're still working virtually. And frankly, they want to continue to do that. And outside of your students, how about executives that you interact with? Are they staying at home or are they slowly returning to their offices? They're slowly returning. The higher echelon we see are going into the office more often often, especially if the CEO and president, if they're adamant about having more people in the workplace, the senior leadership team, of course, is following. And then they're putting pressure on their people to begin to show up in the office more often. And then you have other companies where they've really embraced the virtual workforce and they know which jobs and which positions work better virtually than they do in person. And it's not really needed to have the person on board. A host of really interesting issues in the cost of office space and how people feel about collaboration in their environment. But the bottom line is most of the workers don't want to go back permanently to a five-day-a-week office environment. And if you are counseling one of them, either student or executive, and the boss says return or else, and they say, well, I'm not so sure, what would you tell them to do? I've always advised the worker to protect themselves first because the companies always protect themselves. You don't want to say something or do something that's going to put your job in jeopardy. However, you're in charge of your career. You're in charge of your life and your family and your time. Therefore, if you have to salute and go in, you do so. But the job market's pretty robust. And a lot of companies that take that attitude are going to lose really good employees because there are a lot of companies that will give you now the flexibility that people want. Do you think as one of those higher echelon bosses, that if one of your employees insists on working from home, say one day a week, that that would placate you? I think that's minimal. 
I think most people want more flexibility than that. And they really want a say in this sort of relationship. You know, it's interesting, Greg, when the pandemic occurred, we didn't know what the world economy and the U.S. economy was going to do. We didn't know if things were going to crash. And by and large, those workers who had the ability to use technology to continue to do their job for themselves and their company, they were tremendously successful. They did tremendous work literally overnight. And they adapted very quickly. Productivity was strong. Earnings were strong. The workers in those situations have earned the right to have a say in how they do their work. And I think those companies that don't realize that, they'll get a quiet salute from these good workers, but most of those good workers will start to look elsewhere. And I agree with you that workers should have a say in their careers and their environments, but how do you deal with the issue of parity and equality? Each company culture and environment is going to determine that. If the leadership team is adamant about, hey, you're not showing loyalty to the company by your unwillingness to come back into the office for five days a week. Therefore, we think lesser of you. That's going to have a negative impact on someone's status within the company and probably compensation and promotion opportunities. However, if the leadership team is really embracing the fact that the virtual employee or the employee with some sense of autonomy in their own life is just as valuable, then they will reward that person appropriately and those people appropriately. So it really starts with the mindset and the culture at the top. And we can see right now Citibank being much more open to remote work and Goldman Sachs being much less open to remote work. We can see Apple, where Cook wants people in the office for collaboration purposes and so forth. This thing is playing itself out rather dramatically with the workforce. But what gets missed in all of this, the pandemic has sort of put on the table something that people in my line of work and my line of study has not been appreciated for a long time. And that's the intrinsic motivation of the individual worker. Just to make it really simple, but workers can really produce and really will produce when they have a few good things coming to them from the company. And one of them is autonomy. Surprise, surprise. I can determine how and when I work. That shows you respect me as a person. You respects my abilities and so forth. I know the purpose for what I'm doing. You know, we can go to Dan Pink's really simple book on motivational theory, intrinsic motivation, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. But when we start to do those things and give that to the worker, we get the productivity. During the pandemic, we got that. People found out that they could log on at 7 a.m. instead of 9. They could log off a little bit earlier and spend some time with the family. That all seemed to work for people. I don't think that's going away. Jim, if you don't feel as an employee that you receive that respect should you demand an incentive to return to the office? Money is not a motivator. How about additional vacation days? How about a promotion? How about something else? I think those things would be good and could be helpful, but ultimately what people really value is the mental and physical space to determine how and when they should work. Especially now when you have competing organizations down the road or across town that are open to the idea of giving you some sense of autonomy of calling out your work week. What's best for you and your family? There's this myth. These myths start with grade school, like we teach all students the same way. In the reality, there's a hundred different ways we could teach students, but we do it for simplicity purposes. 
and we're not always effective. And the same thing with the worker. Some people are highly productive from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. at night. And when you leave them alone and let them do it from their kitchen table at home, they do tremendous work for you because that works for them. Companies need to sort of open up and appreciate the differences that people have in their work schedule and when their brain is most active, what fits the family. This is interesting, Greg. This is a really interesting thing. The foundation of society is a strong family. And we have a chance to sort of reshape the dynamics of the family too here, where mom and dad have a little bit more time with the kids. Maybe there's more meals together. There's more communication. There's a lot of good stuff that can come from this. And I'm not saying that nobody should go to the office ever, but I'm thinking that there has to be a dialogue here. And I think the, the worker has shown that he and she really deserve that. Jim, thank you very much. You're welcome, Greg. Jim French, senior lecturer at the Boston University Questrom School of Business in Career Management and Human Resources. Don, back to you. Thanks, Greg. Next up, we'll hear from a prominent developer about how the shutdown affected building projects when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top-tier business school until my first day. The curriculum at Questrooms is really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business, such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Questrom School of Business and be able to work in any area of the industry. Interested? Go to bu.edu slash Questrom. You're listening to The Language of Business. We've heard how some companies want their employees back at work now, every day. And other companies are more open-minded about it. Now let's find out how the shutdown affected building projects. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. Housing starts and construction expenses are often leading economic indicators, but how about now and as more people want to work at home or potentially take a hybrid approach, what's going to happen to office construction? We're on location with Matt Grosshandler, who's co-founder and VP of operations of Bald Hill Builders, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you very much, Greg. Matt, what are you seeing right now in terms of general construction work? Just coming out of a pretty tough economy through the COVID period, about a year, year and a half impact to the construction market, there's quite a bit of new that's happening. First of all, there's most recent escalation. You've probably seen and heard that in the material and commodity markets, the shortage of labor, which has both governmental and financial impacts to the cost of construction, availability of manpower, and of course, a pent-up demand that would have happened as a result of so much of the work that had been teed up being stalled for some period of time. But in general, are people booking you now three, six, nine months out in the future? Oh yeah. Anywhere from one to three years in backlog right now, we have a significant amount of work that is accumulating. One of the negative outcomes of COVID has been the rise in the cost of construction materials, which obviously is core to your business. Has that helped or hurt you in terms of current and future projects? Sure. Great question. It definitely has not helped our business or at least the backlog and acquisition of new business. The rise in cost is real. I mean, it's something we need to be mindful of and it certainly pays its toll or at least bears merit on a day-to-day basis as we're considering new projects. I would challenge that I don't believe all of the rising costs is necessarily related to COVID. I think you have really two different parallel factors that may be causing some of that impact. The first one is governmental regulatory tariffs and what it's been like to try to get materials in from overseas, particularly 
Canada, which is, I think, a big factor on the lumber side. But the other thing is that we have to remember back a decade ago when we all got smoked pretty good from the 2008-2009 recession. In that instance, so many manufacturers changed their product offering from what had built up inventory and in some instances one two-year supply of inventory built up. Many companies switched either into much shorter inventory durations. It could be the result of inventory and what that means with regard to material being stockpiled and available when we need it. A lot of companies have moved to just-in-time delivery. So equipment that may have been on a shelf prior is being custom ordered. That's a game changer that happens a decade old, a dozen years ago already, as a result of the 2008-2009 recession. And so you get a compilation, sort of a perfect storm of people having changed their inventory control over the last decade, compiled with recent work stoppage shortage of manpower, and all of a sudden you can't make the product fast enough. And then of course, the resurgence of the economy after a one-year hiatus or slowdown. I'm thrilled to hear it's not hurting your business, but I'm sort of amused as to how it possibly couldn't hurt your business. So most of our work is commercial business, a lot of multifam, a lot of affordable housing, assisted living, you know, senior healthcare, some commercial office interiors, industrial manufacturer healthcare. In most of those markets, demand is demand. It's not like a project is going to be put on a shelf in perpetuity, maybe for six months or a year to write out a pandemic or to write out some economic hardship. But at the end of the day, if you need a new dorm, you need a new dorm. But is it hurting the budgets then of your clients? Costs are definitely on the rise. There's no argument about that. The question is, is what perception that has, right? Or what long impact that has. If you're working on a project that has a certain amount of carry cost, whether it be debt on land, architectural design fees, utilities, taxes, all of those things that are going, the cost of standing still often is as costly, if not more costly than the cost of a few items. The other thing, and I'm not trying to make light of inflation. Certainly inflation is not great. It certainly is impacting the bottom line of projects. It's requiring clients to be more attentive to the budget. It's requiring designers to be maybe more selective in some of the niceties they would have otherwise incorporated. But so far anyway, inflation or escalation has not been typical across all divisions. It's been limited to a handful of key items like the lumber market, steel market, pressed metals, and so on. And so we are definitely seeing those costs rise, but in the big scheme of things, it's not resulting in a 50% increase. Like for instance, lumber for a period of time was up almost 300%. Even when lumber was up 300%, lumber only makes up, let's say 10 or 15% of the cost of a job. So it may have been a 10 to 15% impact to the overall bottom line. Interesting. You mentioned that you're doing affordable housing, a lot of stuff on the commercial side. Has your business development approach changed? Definitely. I think more than 90% of our business annually is repeat business. We don't employ a full-time, frankly, any business development or marketing people. Really, our business developments are existing clients, our repeat clients. And so Brenda, who's both my wife and business partner, most of our business development has been organic. Through COVID, we were forced to knock on doors and pursue work. We had about half of our portfolio, if not even more than half of our portfolio, either suspended or permanently canceled as a result of rethinking the new normal, are students coming back to school or not? As a result of that, we, like anybody else, we had to go and look at some new markets and pursue some different work. Interestingly now, it seems like the floodgates have opened and not just as work resumed, I think if anything, we're seeing more volume today than we did a year or two prior to COVID. 
I think what we're actually seeing is the ability to be more selective with our work, be more selective with our clients. For us, by the way, it's really important to note our growth has been strategic since the very beginning of the company. We could have been a much larger company today if that was what we wanted to do. We focused our energies, our deeper relationships, our more repetitive work on really pursuing the markets that we wanted to pursue and not just chasing work for the sake of chasing work. What this has done for us right now is it's given us the ability to really focus in on the clients that we want to be doing work with, the sectors that we want to be servicing and really allowing us to tighten our SOPs and to really focus on the fundamentals. What are you seeing in terms of designs? I can't imagine offices are becoming bigger, but are their configurations changing? Help us to understand that, please. Great point. So I'm going to answer the question twofold because one is both selfishly and the second is what I'm seeing with our client. The growing demand for office space was gigantic. I mean, how many millions of square feet can the Fortune 100 companies rent in downtown urban locations and at what cost where real estate's a premium? So I think already as a community, we've already saw some of the, the larger companies in particular going into office hoteling and having shared work environments and so on. There's actually a couple of really good examples overseas where they've got these really intelligent buildings. And I think the corporate environment as a whole has adapted pretty well to that. Of course, through COVID, it opened everybody's eyes on telecommuting and what that means. And frankly, a lot of the larger companies that were in the middle of signing and renewing, you know, half a million, million square foot leases, went back and rethought that and said, do we really need a million square feet? And this is where I stem back into my own personal opinion. We happen to live and work in a very collaborative business. It's very hard to do much of the meaningful work we do if you're not elbow to elbow with your contemporaries, if you're not doing coordination, if you're not doing all of these things. And frankly, if you asked me two, three, four years ago, I would have said, we still need to be in person all the time. We just have to be. It's hard to get the depth of knowledge or to get the depth of interaction without that. I think some of the tools that have come out through COVID, softwares, and of course, Zoom, as we're sitting here right now on a Zoom call, I think has changed the way many people, including myself, have looked at collaboration and collaborative spaces. And for instance, I draw in the Zoom draw feature, annotate feature daily. What used to be hand sketches have now become Zoom sketches and screenshots, right? At the end of the day, I think the tools are catching up with where the business environment wants to be. And I think as a result of that, you'll start to see the overall office demand start to drop. And I think that much more companies are starting to embrace telecommuting and remote working. And while face-to-face interaction is still important, and frankly, I'm a huge, enormous believer of this culturally. Especially in my business where you're relying on your coworkers and your partners and associates to be there with you and for you. And frankly, nothing will get done if it weren't for the interaction with our own associates. These tools that are becoming available are making it so that we can, I'm sure you probably had a Zoom happy hour. The new challenge is going to be continuing to foster that culture or that in-person culture in some of the telecommuting marketplaces. And if we could do that and do that well, I think you'll see telecommuting stick around for a while. Matt, thank you very much. You bet. Matt Gross Handler. Co-founder and VP of Operations at Bald Hill Builders. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We now have downloads in 77 countries in 42 states, plus D.C. and Puerto Rico. We appreciate the support. If you like our podcast, please mention it to someone and subscribe. The Language of Business is available wherever you get podcasts or ask Alexa. Our social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Oswee Media. Consulting producer, Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Direction, audio editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.